This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So yes, I'm going to talk to you primarily. I'm going to start with uh, a discussion about what fear is because my views on this uh, have crystallized in recent years. And um, if you know anything about what I do, you probably don't really know what I do because uh, it's been misrepresented quite a bit over the years. So, um, So fear, I think, most of us will agree, is an awareness that uh, there's a threat to well-being, a well-being that's present or imminent. And this can be in the form of these kinds of biological or social cues uh, that have the potential to cause us harm. And when we encounter these kinds of threatening events, a lot of things happen in our brains and bodies uh, that uh, some of them are recognizable by others, and that's how we uh, judge someone else as being fearful or anxious. But others are more internal, and we can only judge in ourselves in terms of body, move, uh, body um, uh, responses. Uh, of course, we can measure these objectively if we hook a person up to some sort of physiological recording. But the most important part of fear is the internal awareness that you're in danger. Now, the traditional view of how this comes about, and I'm partly responsible for this, uh, is that this part of the brain called the amygdala, which you heard about uh, a bit earlier, is a fear center. That is uh, a view that is widely uh, uh, cast in the culture and in the scientific circles as well. Uh, the idea is that the threat in the outside world is processed by sensory systems. That reaches the amygdala. It arouses the state of fear, and fear causes these behavioral and physiological responses. Now, when I talked about fear as being involved in the amygdala, which I've done for almost 30 years now, the idea was that what the amygdala was doing was processing implicitly or non-consciously threats and that the conscious experience of fear was coming about through a different mechanism, which I proposed was uh, in the neocortex, and I'll describe that in a bit later. But what got carried forth in the scientific and lay culture is that I said that fear is in the amygdala, Uh, and I think that this is wrong, and that's what I want to help clarify as we move forward today. So what's wrong with the idea? Well, the, the idea is based on two kinds of observations. One is that when a person or an animal uh, is, uh, ha- has some problem with their amygdala, they no longer respond to threats in, the way that, uh, in a way that you can measure, like behaviorally or physiologically. And secondly, uh, when an animal or, an, or, a per- or a human is exposed to a threat, activity increases in the amygdala. So these two things kind of suggest that the amygdala is processing threats, and that has led to the conclusion that the amygdala is the source of fear. But that, I think, is a leap that's too far to make. So why is that a leap that, uh, that's too far? Well, behavioral and physiological responses uh, don't always correlate with subjectively uh, reported experiences of fear. Medications that are used to treat fear and anxiety are more likely to change behavioral responses like avoidance or timidity uh, and physiological responses like hyperarousal than the subjective feeling of fear. And as a result of of point two there, all of the major drug companies are pulling out of the anti-fear, anti-anxiety medication business because they view the results uh, of 
of uh, efforts to develop new and better treatments as a failure. Uh, they don't consider uh, a reduction in behavior and physiology a success because the patient doesn't feel less fearful or anxious, so the therapist is disappointed, the patient is disappointed, and uh, the drug companies are disappointed. So, number three, threats elicit amygdala activity in behavioral and physiological responses in the absence of subjective awareness that the stimulus exists, as in Nick Humphrey's famous blind sight uh, situations uh, in humans rather than monkeys, though, uh, and without any feeling of fear. So this can be done through studies of blind sight, but also uh, through studies of so-called subliminal um, uh, presentations of stimuli, where stimuli are presented very briefly or masked by some other kind of stimulus. The stimulus is present. It's a threat. The person uh, doesn't feel fear, and yet the amygdala is still activated, and the responses are still expressed. Fear is not the cause of those responses. Uh, and finally, in the uh, damage to the amygdala in a human, eliminates the behavioral and physiological responses, but not subjective feelings of fear. So all of this, to me, suggests that fear is not coming out of the amygdala, but someplace else. So I will put an X through this, uh, this fear circuit view, and I, will, I first want to redefine what the amygdala does. I think one way to, to describe it that is semantically more neutral and doesn't uh, imply that fear is, is, is uh, emerging, bubbling up out of the amygdala, is to simply call it a defensive survival circuit. Every animal has to detect and respond to danger, as we heard about birds uh, being able to uh, detect and respond to danger, and I was happy to hear that fear didn't come up there. It was described as um, uh, responses to danger and threat. Uh, so every animal, from a worm to a human, has to be able to detect and respond to danger in order to stay alive. Even bacterial cells have to detect and respond to danger. So detecting and responding to danger has nothing to do with psychology. It's there to keep the organism alive. And if you have some kind of psychology because of the kind of brain you have, then you become aware that you're in danger and you experience fear. So... Threats activate a defensive survival circuit that non-consciously controls defensive responses, and humans have inherited this def defensive survival circuit from animals, but not the conscious experience of fear. So if the amygdala is not the source of fear, how does it come about? I'd say it comes about like any other conscious experience. Now, we might argue about how that comes about, and there are some experts in the room that may not agree with me, but uh, my own position is that um, once we understand consciousness, we'll get an understanding of emotions for free. Um, so my shot at it is something like this, which goes, is an idea that really started uh, when I was doing split brain work in uh, the 1970s as a graduate student. And I won't go into that, but the idea is that, uh, and I, I proposed this model in 1984 before I did any research on fear itself, but the basic idea is that the threat comes into the brain, and it's processed through different kinds of channels. There are connections from sensory systems into this defensive survival circuit that control these behavioral and physiological responses, and then to cortical areas uh, where you have processes like attention and working memory that can put things together and hold them in mind. Uh, and one of the things that can add into, uh, that can be added into working memory is the fact that this defensive survival circuit is active and that uh, you're getting feedback from the body and so forth. And all of this kind of coalesces in the mind uh, to make fear a cognitive event, not an innate feeling inherited uh, from animal ancestors. So I'm not saying that animals have 
no conscious experiences, no subjective experiences of fear or anxiety or anything like that. But if they do, they're probably very different from the kinds of experiences uh, we have. Um, some of the things that... Um, uh, well, so why is this kind of theory uh, needed? One, for one reason, uh, fear doesn't have an exclusive contract with the amygdala, which is generally thought to be a kind of predatory defense system. Uh, we can be afraid, we can have fear from starvation, dehydration, hypothermia, reproductive isolation, each of which depends on other survival circuits. So the, the key is not that the amygdala is activated, but that you have some kind of activity that threatens your existence or potentially causes you harm. Um, so what we feel depends on what kinds of signals are being processed in working memory, including signals from, from uh, survival circuits, but other signals as well. So rather than having a kind of subcortical circuit, one for each kind of basic emotion, uh, I propose that the cortical cognitive higher-order representation uh, uh, of information accounts for emotional and non-emotional experiences in one kind of basic system. And I won't have time to go into any of the evidence for all of this right now, but I'd like to make it, uh, um, analogize it by, by explaining how you make soup, which you all know. You take water, onions, garlic, carrots, all kinds of ingredients, put them into the pot, and none of these are soup ingredients. They're things that exist in nature that, when combined in a certain way, make soup. And I think emotions are like this as well. We have lots of things in our brain that are there for various reasons, like sensory processing, survival circuits, brain arousal, body feedback, attention, semantic memory, episodic memory, in implicit fear schema, monitoring, awareness that you are in danger, interpretation. Most of these have nothing to do with fear or emotion. They're simply things that exist um, to allow you to um, uh, accomplish other goals. So when you put them together in a particular way, uh, fear is what results. Now, this kind of re-schematizes uh, all this. On the left side of the diagram, we have things that would be contributing to regular old conscious experience, non-emotional states. And on the right side, there are ingredients that begin to tilt it into in a kind of emotional direction. Um, and you can see the survival circuit uh, multiplicity there that can generate activity that will help tilt it in one way or the other. Um, but the, I think an important, there are a couple of important things on this I want to point out. On the two sides of the vertical uh, line there, self-schema and emotion schema, I think these are both, both very important. Unless you have an awareness that the danger is happening to you, there's no fear or any other kind of emotion. In order to be emotional, you have to realize that it's you that is experiencing this situation. If you know, a threat might cause you to respond in a certain way, but if you don't know that it's happening to you, you're not afraid. Um, now, you might say, well, I can be afraid or worried about my children if I see them in danger. But your children are, in effect, part of who you are, as are the, William James says, you know, a man's yacht is part of uh, who he is. Uh, so <laughs> I think you know, we, I would be very happy, unhappy if I lost my guitar because it is such an important part of, of who I am. So I think self-schema self are very important, but also emotion schema. As the child grows, begins to grow up and, and experience the world and come across dangerous situations, uh, they're told what danger is, they may experience danger themselves, they observe it in, on TV and in movies. They build up these schemas about what danger is and when fear occurs. So that when you 
have these kinds of schema, it's very easy to pattern complete the entire representation of what fear is with just a few or maybe even one element. If a threat is present, you're probably moving into towards a, a cognitive pattern completion that the situation is one in which you're feeling uh, fear. Add in the fact that escape is not possible and that your heart is beating fast and so forth, and bingo, you've got the whole thing closed up. So the idea that emotions are cognitively assembled states made by the information available to working memory is related to Levi-Strauss's notion of bricolage. In French, this means to uh, put things together, items that happen to be available. He emphasized the importance of the individual, the bricolure, and the social context in the construction process. Others note that uh, maybe persons, objects, contexts, the sequence and fabric of everyday life or the medium through which emotions come into being, a day-to-day kind of emotional bricolage. In the brain, working memory can be thought of as the bricolure and the content of emotional consciousness as the bricolage. So if emotions are cognitive events and circuits that differ in significant ways in humans and other animals, including other primates, then emotions we experience, including emotions related to death, may be unique and unparalleled in the, in the animal kingdom. Add language and culture to the emotional equation, and the case strengthens. So animals may have subjective experiences, but can't have the kinds of experiences we have, or at least that's how I think about it. So second part of my title is, Is Fear of, de- is, uh, is fear of Death a Fear? Fear, formally defined as the awareness that a threat to your well-being is present. Anxiety is the expectation or worry that your well-being may be compromised in the future. Many situations described as fears are really anxieties. But fear and anxiety are really conjoined twins. Even in a clear case of bodily threat, uh, fear quickly morphs into worry about the future. A snake at your feet causes you to freeze and feel fear of bodily harm, but that's soon complemented, if not overtaken, by worries about what will happen if you're bitten. Will you die? Uh, Will you get to the emergency room in time? Will they have the antidote and so forth? And death is always in the future, so it's a worry or an anxiety rather than a fear. Fear and anxiety are products of the same cortical system, in my theory, um, but different subcortical circuits are part of what makes fear and anxiety different. Specifically, subcortical circuits underlying the processing and control of bodily responses related to immediate or certain threats versus future and uncertain threats are different. Um, In the case of the uh, the immediately present threat, the amygdala is very important. In the case of a future threat, an area called the bed nucleus of the stereoterm analysis is important. Now, the bed nucleus has become for anxiety what fear, for what the amygdala is for fear. It's been viewed as the source of anxiety, but it's not. Like the amygdala, it detects and responds to threats, in this case, threats in the future. Fear and anxiety are the cognitive interpretation that these things are happening. So why does it matter what we call uh, these things? First of all, why does it matter what we call fear and anxiety? Uh, why can't we just use one word and, or just maybe just even use them interchangeably? Um, for one reason, the um, problems that, that afflict people that have these conditions um, need to be treated differently if the threat is a worry about the future as opposed to a kind of um, um, oversensitivity to immediately present stimuli. But in the case of, um, of fear of death or anxiety about death, 
the imprecision in scientific terminology, while a constant problem, uh, uh, it, it can be easily be avoided by being clearer about the language. So in treating someone, say, who is obsessed with death, um, or in designing treatments that might help people who are at the end of life and uh, needing to not be quite as anxious about it, uh, thinking of these things in terms of what's going on in the brain can actually be more constructive than simply assuming that it all happens in the same way. And that's my two cents about fear of death. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I'd like to thank the organizers and say um, uh, how glad I am to be here and participating in this very interesting symposium. Uh, and indeed to have the opportunity uh, of discussing uh, together a problem uh, which we all sooner or later will, will have to come to terms with. Uh, and that is indeed a, uh, an interesting point. So I'd like to start with uh, just uh, uh, a couple of quotations. Uh, this from Wittgenstein. Um, and uh, it makes an important point, I think, that... Um, we are talking uh, of death, uh, but death uh, is a concept. Uh, obviously, there are individual deaths or there are dead bodies, dead people uh, that we may or may, may not come into contact with, uh, but death is a concept. And as humans, uh, we may, in the modern world, not witness many deaths, but from the earliest times, hominins and humans have experienced the deaths of relatives. So the condition of being dead will have uh, been a familiar concept, uh, at least as soon as human language could find a word for it, namely the adjective dead. But I think it is crucial to the discussion to realize that with, without uh, the concept of death, uh, and indeed uh, without a, uh, a, a language uh, which could find a word from it, then it's not possible to communicate about death, and it's not possible uh, to have a shared concept of death. Uh, and so uh, the, uh, uh, the awareness of death as a general phenomenon uh, is very much, and when that came to be in evolutionary terms, uh, is very much associated with the question of when uh, human language emerged in a sufficiently sophisticated form that one could have an abstract, abstract noun uh, dead, or an abstract uh, death, I mean, or an abstract adjective dead, uh, which could uh, give a word to the concept. And so uh, I suspect uh, that when we're discussing when did the awareness of death uh, become uh, a, a reality for humankind, the answer is when language had been developed to find a word for it. It's worth mentioning also, uh, it's interesting perhaps, that uh, um, uh, Epicurus had uh, uh, a similar concept to Wittgenstein's uh, and a couple of thousand years earlier. But as archaeologists, 
We don't encounter death very often, uh, and indeed we don't even encounter dead bodies very often. As archaeologists, we more often encounter burials. That is to say, uh, dead persons that have been inhumed deliberately. And it's unusual for archaeologists to discover uh, dead people. Uh, And it's so worth uh, looking, uh, reminding ourselves of these extraordinary images of moments of death found at Pompeii and Herculaneum and the uh, archaeologists who found cavities uh, in the the volcanic ash and poured plaster of Paris into these cavities were able to get these extraordinary images of uh, death, if you like, of the moment of death of a kind which is uh, exceedingly uh, unusual in archaeological terms. Uh, The business of burial um, uh, is often very much associated or generate in later times with notions of what is to follow, uh, whether or not there is an afterlife. And that is why I've given my uh, talk uh, the notion, uh, the the title of uh, the archaeology of immortality. And this slide is from the Capuchin uh, Cemetery in Palermo. Uh, And of course, the Kambuchian monks were very much aware uh, that there would be a day of resurrection. Uh, And so uh, this is now the Capuchin Cemetery in Rome, where we see uh, these extraordinarily elaborate and sometimes very decorative uh, figurations, uh, which uh, I think to us today, to most of us today, perhaps because we don't very often see skeletons or dead bodies in the modern world, that's in the mortuary, which we don't visit, um, and it's in the cemetery, but you don't see the dead body in most Christian burials, uh, and indeed in, in most many faiths, uh, so that uh, we are very much insulated from death, uh, and these are perhaps rather shocking. Uh, images uh, for us uh, and we find uh, the apparent frivolity uh, which you encounter in the Capuchin Chapel perhaps a little unseemly. Uh, But uh, it's worth remembering, and I think we should pause and recognize, that we live in the Americas or in Europe or in Western Asia in a society today dominated by two or perhaps three religions which hold that the supreme deity, God or Allah, promises uh, that life after death will be the destiny for those who believe. And so I take you to the Sistine Chapel, to uh, Michelangelo, last judgment Uh, and there will be many people here today who follow some version of the Christian faith so well expressed by Michelangelo for the Church of Rome in his vision of the last judgment where the blessed and the damned are judged on the basis of their conduct during life and sent accordingly to their ultimate destinations their two ultimate destinations Uh, and uh, it is uh, a convention in the scientific world um, which is particularly inappropriate for this occasion that we don't discuss faith very much. Um, maybe there are symposia on faith but they tend to de- or they can degenerate into alternative expressions of personal faith. Uh, and so it's an irony really uh, that we are here today uh, discussing uh, awareness of death uh, but uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, belief systems 
uh, which determine to some extent uh, what uh, a number of us will feel uh, about uh, death uh, are not openly expressed. And I think that's worth saying because underlying all the discussions is that some of us here are believers, perhaps of uh, those two or three religions which predominate uh, in, the, uh, in the Western world, and others of us are not believers uh, and are agnostics or atheists, and therefore inevitably have a very different approach to death, uh, and uh, many agnostics or atheists will not believe uh, in uh, the existence of the human being after death, although, of course, some may. And obviously I don't have time to talk about the Buddhist faith on this occasion. So I'm Move right on to uh, the uh, earliest uh, accumulations of human bones, which may or may not be burials. This is the Cima de los Huesos in Spain, uh, which is early hominins, early Neanderthalers probably, around 400,000 years ago, which were tipped into uh, these pits. Uh, these cave, uh, these caves, and uh, presumably deliberately so, though they're not, that is not certain. But they don't really uh, constitute burials in a deliberate sense. And the first human burials are archaic uh, are hominins. This is uh, from school uh, in uh, Jordan, uh, and uh, uh, that is something like a uh, hundred thousand years ago. These are archaic uh, hominins uh, of humans, following the slide we saw in the last presentation, who have uh, uh, have left uh, Africa. Uh, And with these burials, we do find uh, sometimes uh, uh, other objects, sometimes some uh, bone signifying meat, not a human bone, but a a bone uh, of uh, mutton uh, or something like that. And so uh, that is certainly a deliberate burial, which is certainly signifying awareness of death. You can't uh, come about having a a deliberate burial without some awareness of death, but it doesn't necessarily signify an afterlife. Uh, and uh, this is one of the first sites uh, in, uh, in Europe, in Romania, uh, where we find uh, deliberate burials. You do, of course, have Neanderthal burials, for instance, at the Shanidar Cave, uh, something like uh, 40 or more thousand years ago. Uh, and, uh, uh, but it's not until um, the upper Paleolithic period, until the arrival of Homo sapiens in uh, uh, Europe uh, that we find uh, deliberate burials of this kind, uh, this uh, very striking um, uh, body uh, inhumed uh, with a headdress, uh, which uh, uh, comes from the site of Sungia. And this is uh, uh, another such burial. This is around 28,000 years ago in Russia. Uh, But although it's impressive, uh, it's important to understand it. It's clearly recognizing death. It's it's a formal burial, but not yet in a cemetery. Uh, It's a formal burial, uh, and so uh, uh, that indicates something, but not necessarily a suggestion of awareness in the afterlife. This is a similar burial from the site of a rainy candidate in northern Italy. And here now is one of the first cemeteries, uh, a number of burials grouped together, and you find find these at the very dawn of sedentism, uh, just before uh, the domestication of agriculture is fully achieved in the Natufian period uh, in Palestine and in Western Asia, um, uh, around 12,000 BC. And here is another of these sites where we find uh, a cemetery. Uh, 
And clearly, a, a cemetery is a different response to uh, death. Uh, it's a, a place specifically chosen uh, for the formal uh, disposal of the dead. And here is another such example from uh, an early site in Jordan, about 15,000 BC. And it's a Jericho in the pre-Pottery Neolithic uh, A period that you find these remarkable plastered skulls. And these are one of the most striking finds uh, that, uh, that one uh, has where death is being uh, responded to. Uh, and uh, uh, it's possible that this uh, relates to a belief in the afterlife, but it's also uh, just as possible that it relates to a belief in the significance of the ancestors, whether or not the ancestors are presumed to be still living in some sense. It is the ancestors uh, who give uh, uh, often one's right to inhabit the land, the territory which one inhabits today. And so this, uh, moving on very rapidly to northern Europe, to the Orkney Islands, this is a site of, uh, I excavated myself, of Contenes in Orkney, where you see um, uh, a, a constructed tomb, a very handsomely constructed tomb. Here is a reconstruction of it. And this is a place of collective burial. And collective burial is another phenomenon where the, the bones of a, or the bodies of a community are together buried. Uh, and that is uh, an important point. Uh, it is uh, when you come to uh, rank societies that you find burials with very strikingly wealthy grave goods. And here uh, is one of the jade burials of the Songzhe culture around 3300 uh, BC uh, in China. And here is another of these jade burials of the same period uh, also in China. And there's something special about the material uh, of jade, just as is special uh, about the material gold. Uh, which one finds here in the earliest occurrence of gold in the world at Varna, something like uh, 4,500 BC. And the inclusion of these materials doesn't necessarily uh, indicate a belief in the afterlife, uh, but there is with the purity and survival of gold and uh, the purity and survival of jade, something which certainly in later times is associated with immortality and uh, I think there's a possibility that this is the time that immortality uh, first uh, enters the archaeological record, as it were, in these rich burials. This is another burial from, uh, from Varna uh, in Bulgaria uh, around 4,500 BC. But it is with the arrival of state societies uh, and with the arrival of a belief in deities, in transcendent deities, uh, that you certainly find... Uh, a systematic belief in the afterlife. Uh, and deities, of course, uh, are by definition immortal. And you find deities in the archaeological record, uh, it may be argued, for the first time in state societies such as ancient Egypt. So here you see the pyramids. Here you see uh, the wonderful uh, gold sarcophagus from the tomb of Tutankhamun. And we know a great deal about Egyptian beliefs. And here um, is from the Book of the Dead is the weighing of the soul of the deceased uh, in, the, uh, in the balance uh, and if the, uh, the, the soul of the deceased uh, was sufficiently free from sin as to be sufficiently light then, uh, in weight, uh, then the deceased would be accepted into a favorable afterlife. 
Uh, and so it's in, um, in China uh, again with the Shang dynasty that you find these enormously rich burials uh, and uh, uh, with the first uh, bronzes in China and these are of great abundance uh, and uh, it's also in Mesoamerica that with the development of state society, for instance with the Maya, uh, that you find very elaborate burials uh, which do clearly uh, involve the belief uh, of an afterlife, at least for the ruler. And this is the tomb of the inscriptions at Palenque. And here is the wonderful tomb slab uh, of uh, uh, the uh, deceased person of Pakal. And here is Pakal himself being taken down into the underworld. This is uh, uh, around 603 um, before the Common Era. And here is the contents of his tomb, including this wonderful jade mask. And there is the jade mask. And it's interesting to compare that with the jade masks which in China uh, are used to uh, surround the, uh, the body uh, of the deceased uh, person. This is, uh, that was uh, Liu Shan, and this is the burial suit of Princess Do Wan, uh, 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 who, uh, uh, who was buried around 113, or died 113 before the Common Era. Uh, in Europe, it's the uh, uh, necropolis, the cities of the dead of the Etruscans, which give the most wonderful example. Here is Cervetary. Here is the sarcophagus of the spouses from Cervetary. And it's there that we find the wonderful painted tombs. Here is the tomb of the leopards. Uh, and this is a funeral banquet, or certainly a banquet. Uh, the, uh, the deceased person uh, reclining uh, with uh, relatives and friends and being served on as uh, Roman banquets were transacted and here is a very beautiful uh, wall painting from the tomb of the Baron around 500 BC and this too is Tarquinia around 500 BC from the tomb of the Baron and uh, here is one of the most delightful uh, depictions of music and dance from the ancient world uh, likewise uh, uh, of, uh, of that period uh, and so we obviously find uh, in the ancient world, wonderful representations. Here is uh, the goddess Athena in mourning at the grave stele uh, of a deceased youth. And here is one of the most uh, delightful series of paintings of deceased persons which you find uh, on the mummy coverings uh, in, the, in, in the Fayum. And they have a wonderful vivacity, uh, but they're commemorating a deceased person uh, for whom a belief in the afterlife uh, was probably a, a doctrinal reality. And then you have the grandiose. Uh, uh, this is uh, uh, from the tomb of Mausolus, Mausolus, from whom we have the, t the term mausoleum, meaning a grandiloquent uh, commemorative tomb, usually. And this is the funeral effigy of uh, Mausolus, which is now in the British Museum. And here is a, a reconstruction uh, of uh, the tomb of Mausolus, uh, as it would have been in, in Western Anatolia, Halicarnassus in Anatolia. And here in Rome uh, is the, uh, uh, the great... Uh, 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 
monumental tomb, a tomb of Hadrian, uh, which is today the Castel San Angelo. Uh, and here is a reconstruction of how it may have looked. And this is obviously uh, the notion of death of an emperor as uh, a significant uh, event. Uh, and of course, the emperors of Rome were deified, and so on their death, it was uh, presumed uh, that uh, they went on to live an eternal life. And indeed, indeed uh, the later emperors were re already regarded as divine uh, before their death, so there was no trouble about that. And here is Hadrian indeed. And so, uh, just to come to the conclusion, uh, obviously uh, we continue uh, to use grave monuments uh, as uh, a suitable locus uh, for celebrating the dead. Uh, and this is the tomb of Giuliano de Medici uh, from the uh, Medici Chapel in Florence. This is again uh, Michelangelo, Michelangelo now as sculptor rather than as painter. Uh, and here, as you'll recognize, is the, uh, uh, the Kremlin. And here, in similar guise, is Lenin, uh, still uh, immortalized, still embalmed. Uh, as you remember, Stalin uh, was uh, put beside him for a while, but then perhaps was simply interred very wisely subsequently. Uh, but Lenin still continues to room, rule supreme. And my last image uh, is from uh, the Taj Mahal, this uh, lovely uh, uh, memorial uh, to, uh, uh, to the, uh, the bride uh, of uh, uh, the, the, uh, the Shah, uh, dating from the, seventh, the 17th century uh, AD. So some, some notions of immortality uh, do uh, continue, uh, but of course uh, immortality is usually uh, part of a belief system uh, which uh, uh, involves uh, in the modern world, certainly, uh, a faith uh, uh, of uh, whether it's Christian uh, or uh, uh, Muslim uh, or indeed Buddhist faith, but I haven't had time to discuss uh, the Buddhist notion uh, of transubstantiation, how the soul can move from one individual on death to another individual, uh, and that, of course, is a different concept of immortality. But as I said right at the beginning, uh, I think I think the awareness of death simply depends on having a word for death, and I would say that uh, when we developed as humans an awareness of death uh, as, a, as a concept uh, must be very much when we develop the linguistic capacity. And that linguistic capacity is usually associated with our own species Homo sapiens, uh, as indeed was very well uh, documented by the last speaker with his, uh, 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 his map of the uh, uh, out of Africa uh, expansion of our species something like uh, 60,000 years ago. So uh, that I think gives a, a very brief synopsis of the concept of immortality for humankind. Thank you very much. So before I start, let me explain the general approach that I'm taking to the theme of this symposium today. As an anthropologist, my first port of call for addressing any question about human beings has to be the place where I've done fieldwork. This is because while all human beings are confronted by the same fundamental questions, 
and approach them through the same fundamental capacities that are afforded by their minds and bodies, they always bring to the task of framing the questions and finding the answers tools that are specific to the historical and cultural context in which they live and die. And to talk sensibly about the human beings, their questions and answers, one has to know this context well. So let me take you to Betania, a small fishing village on the west coast of Madagascar. The inhabitants are fishing folk who describe themselves as Vesu, people of the sea. This is where I've done field work on and off for the past 30 years. During this time, I've seen babies being born, children grow into adults, adults age into wise elders, and lots of people of all ages die and being buried in the village cemetery. In Betania, when someone dies, the whole village springs into action. Depending on the age and the status of the deceased, the funerary proceedings last between one and four days. Each day, villagers are expected to attend two communal meals and a vigil. As you can imagine, organizing such events is a huge undertaking for the bereaved family. And while a few individuals are in charge of preparing the corpse and of dealing with the deceased closest and most distressed relatives, the vast majority of family members will be busy dealing with other things. Their first task is to formally announce the death to everyone who has a right to be told. A young boy is sent to all the households in the village. All the youths are dispatched to more distant locations. A text is delivered to the radio station in the nearest town, a text which announces who has died and lists all the names of all the people the death has been announced to. Meanwhile, money is urgently collected from family members. The money is needed to buy the vast quantities of rice and meat for the communal meals and the rum and coffee for the vigils. It is important that the crowds are not let down, for example, by serving them beans or fish instead of meat, or by running out of rum halfway through the night. <laughs> it is shameful, ma menace, to fail to pull it off, not only because this shows that the most immediate family doesn't have the, necess the necessary resources, but also, and perhaps most importantly, because it shows that they don't have enough relations willing to help them out. In fact, everyone in attendance is supposed to make a monetary contribution. As the crowds assemble, the elders of the bereaved family set themselves up in one of their houses. There, they receive representatives of each of the village households and those visitors who have come from further afield. After a certain amount of highly formalized exchanges, the visitors produce an envelope, one insisting that it's nothing, nothing big, just a little thing. The envelope is accepted by the elders who insists that it's not small, but a big thing. After some more back and forth, the visitors leave, the envelope is opened, the money counted, and the amount carefully written down in a special notebook. The visitors will have done the same at their end, consulting their notebooks to find out how much they had received from the bereaved family last time they themselves had a funeral and noting down the amounts they are now contributing. In this way, over time, people ensure that they reciprocate the contributions they have received, 
thus maintaining good relations and not losing face. This kind of reciprocation doesn't always work, but it's always closely monitored. Such and such a family has brought less than expected. Is it because they're really struggling or because they're trying to slight us? Another family has brought much more. Are they just being generous or are they testing us to see whether we can match their contribution in the future? Now, the reasoning I'm mentioning all of this, the announcing, the collecting, the giving, the receiving, the writing down, is that these are the activities that dominate the funeral. Of course, funerals wouldn't happen if there was no death. But the point I wish to stress is that for the vast majority of people, the deceased is actually quite peripheral to their experience and preoccupations. The same applies to their emotional experience. Of course, there are close family members who are highly distressed and grief-stricken. But for most participants, funerals elicit rather different emotions, ranging from plain boredom to alcohol-induced exhilaration to sexual arousal. This last one applies especially to youths who find in funerals the welcome opportunity to meet visitors from distant villagers who, with any luck, are not genealogically related to them and are thus permissible sexual partners. Indeed, it's well known that many long-lasting marriages started at the edges of a vigil. (laughs) Now, to put all this into context, consider that, save for the crowds that gather for the much rarer construction of tombs, events which are planned in advance and are announced and therefore have uh, a better attended. Funerals are the largest gatherings of people that villagers participate in. And they are events which give them a first-hand experience of the large-scale social system to which they belong. Here are these hundreds of other people And here we are, my parents, my children, my siblings, my in-laws, just one note of this vast network of relations. And while funerals give people a snapshot of the existing social landscape, there are also occasions for acting on it and changing its shape. For example, by extending or withdrawing the announcement of the death, by succeeding or failing to put on a good funeral, by giving a small or a large or a balanced contribution, and most literally by having sex, which has the potential of adding new life to the mix. You will have noticed that quite deliberately, I've led you away from the deceased and the raw emotions that surround death. I've done so to dispel the common sense assumption that funerals are centrally about death and grief, and to stress the point that they are instead largely about the gathering of crowds, the expectations and obligations that people have, the appraisal and manipulation of the social relations in which they live. Still, there is a dead body at the center of it all, a body that is fast decomposing and that, sooner or later, must be removed from the village, taken to the cemetery, and placed inside a tomb, one of the many large enclosures that are scattered around the sand dunes. Once the body is buried, an elder gives an explanatory speech informing the other dead of what has just happened. He will then state that the deceased has arrived at the place where he is, Plasimisiasi. 
that nothing more is left to be done and that the crowd should now disperse and go home. The place where, the place where he or she is is a misleadingly simple expression, which in fact captures key aspects of the existential, existential transformation brought about by death. First note that this is not an expression that is used to refer to the journeys of living people. Living people arrive here and there, but they don't arrive at the place where they are. This makes sense because living people are always on the move. They leave, they arrive, and then they move on. Dead people, by contrast, arrive inside their tombs, and there they stay. Second, the expression draws attention to the fact that the deceased arrives at that specific place, this tomb, not another one. The choice of tomb is a highly contentious affair. This is because, as people often told me by way of explanation, we can't cut up corpses into pieces. In other words, the deceased cannot be buried in more than one tomb. In theory, the choice of burial is determined by strict rules which say that children's bones belong to their mother unless the father acquires them through ritual means. In practice, lots of other factors can feed into the final decision, but the point is that when the decision is made, it is final. The overall point I want to get across is this. By placing the dead in the place where they are, the living create a radically different social system to the one they experience when they are alive. A system that lacks movement, the dead arrive once and for all. A system that is not open to negotiation, the dead are either here or there. A system of social relations that are no longer a work in progress, the dead are no longer susceptible to the vagaries of personal success and failures, likes and dislikes, distance and proximity, and so on. From this perspective, it's not surprising that the tombs which create this alternative social system are the most solid and lasting structures that people build. They used to be made of hard wood, but once cement became available in the 60s, it soon became the material of choice because, as people say, it's harder, more durable, unmovable. Given the eerie stillness of corpses, it's also not surprising that humans, not just in Madagascar, imagine the transition from life to death as one that turns the movement of life into immobility and that removes the deceased from the give and take of human interactions, as we've just seen. But humans, not just in Madagascar, seem also prone to imagine something a little more paradoxical, namely that the social systems created through death are long-lasting, that they transcend the now-on, now-off temporality of life. For this to happen, however, something has to give. To put it in the most, most general terms, the complexity of life has to be reduced the makeup of the living person has to be stripped down to its core. Its essence has to be distilled out of its many entanglements. Only when this happens can people begin to imagine that the present is just a replica of the past and that the future will be a replica of the present. In other words, they can begin to imagine a system that defies the passage of time. I'm getting ahead of myself here, so let me give you a couple of examples to illustrate where I'm actually heading. First to the Vesu. 
The living, people say, have at least eight ancestral lines of descent. Those of their eight great-grandparents. In fact, they would have more if they could remember them. This means that in life, each person is made up of is made up of at least eight known ancestral parts, which are unique to that person because only that person and her full siblings share that exact combination of ancestral sources. And so when that person dies, that unique combination also comes to an end. But now imagine that when that person dies, she's buried inside a tomb which contains only individuals who share one of her eight ancestral lines of descent. In being placed there, all of these individuals had seven of their ancestral lines stripped away, thus being reduced to that one that they have in common. And so instead of being unique combinations that are here today and gone tomorrow, they all become a replica of one another, a continuation of that one line of ancestry. And so in and through death, people begin to imagine a social grouping, what Vesu call one kind of people, and anthropologists call a unilineal descent group, which has continuity through time. Let me briefly turn to another example to explain why death in particular is such a powerful moment for imagining this type of continuity. For this, I draw on the work of anthropologist Martha McIntyre, who has worked on the island of Tubetube, one of the many islands in the Masim region of Papua New Guinea. Here, as in many other places in this region, the social groupings that last through time are named matrilineages, each made up of all the people who can trace descent through women to the same female forebear. People here have a folk theory of the human body which says that bones are made up of mother's milk, which in turn is passed from mother to daughter down the generations. The bones, in other words, are quintessentially maternal substance, which is sourced all the way up to that founding female forebear. This means that quite literally, the members of the matrilineage share the exact same bones. When it comes to bones, they are one kind of people, each person just a replica of one another through time. But you can see the problem with this idea. Living people, kicking, screaming, crawling babies, are not made of just bones. To be viable persons, they also need blood and flesh. This soft and wobbly stuff, the folk theory goes, comes from the father. And because one's father belongs to a different matrilineage from that of one's mother, the marriage would otherwise be incestuous, the living person can only ever be a mixed-up person, an idiosyncratic combination of these maternal bones and those paternal blood and flesh, a combination which, like the eight ancestral sources of the Vesu, is here to today and gone tomorrow. However, death resolves the problem. Quite literally, the process of decomposition gets rid of the paternal stuff, leaving just the maternal bones. In addition, funerals consist of complex transactions in which goods that represent flesh and blood are sent back to the family of the father of the deceased, which originally contributed to the person. 
In this way, funerals are thought to deconceive the person who has just died. As a result of all this, the people of Tubetube come to imagine the essence of their matrilineage, the bones in their pure and unadulterated form, as lasting through time, originating in the ancestral past and ready to be passed on to the next generation. This, then, is why death is a source of celebration. Sure, people are born, reproduce, age, and die. As individuals, they are here today and gone tomorrow. But death lends itself, aided by a lot of ritual and imaginative work, to the creation of systems of social relations between the dead and the living, between the living and the unborn, which are long-lasting, defy the passage of time, and transcend death itself. Let me conclude with a reflection on the contemporary relevance of what I've presented you today, drawing on material from some very far-off lands and people. The reflection is that there is an obvious dark side to the celebration, a dark side which my Vesu friends, I just state this without having time to explain, have found ways of overcoming, but others have not. The dark side is that as you might have noticed, the process of creating long-lasting social systems based on kinds of people that are nicely sorted into separate tombs or based on the recovery of pure and pristine bones gives rise to a kind of essentialist thinking that can very quickly turn into ethnic hatred, parochial nationalism, and racial discrimination. So that instead of, instead of building walls around the dead, we find walls sprouting up everywhere to divide people who are believed to be essentially like us from people who are believed to be essentially different from us. And when this happens, the celebration is over. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.